0: problem. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we discuss films previously described by other space travellers as masterpieces. I'm Nick and I am joined as ever by the reliable Roger. Jack. <laughs> um, you always, always outdo my, out, uh, my intros. Um as we um, take to the skies once again um, to discuss Ron Howard's 1995 possible masterpiece, Apollo 13.
1: Hmm. Mm.
0: So this is a, uh, what would you call this,
1: a docudrama, I suppose would be the, the the most... I think so, yeah. I mean, although they weren't... At the time, I believe, the, the filmmakers were working primarily from transcripts. Uh, yes. but these days you can download the entire audio you can
0: and i've let, there is um i will plug a very good podcast 13 minutes to the moon the first of which is about the 13 minute descent uh of the LEM of apollo 11 to the surface of the moon but the second season is all about apollo 13 where you hear a great deal of the actual audio um hmm. which becomes relevant here i think um
1: at yeah some point. well Let's declare some bias first. Uh, I think yes. I think it's fair to say we were both space kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yes. Of slightly different generations. I mean, for me, it was, you know, Apollo's just happened. ASTP is happening. There's going to be all this amazing stuff. It just doesn't seem to be happening right now for some mysterious reason.
0: Yes. Whereas for me, it was the space shuttle is happening. Um, it doesn't seem to be quite as exciting as Apollo for some reason. Oh, it's disastrous. Oh, no, that's the end of the space program. Um, until now, which I suppose we can touch on the current state of the space program at some point. But the fact is, we're both huge fans of the subject, uh, in general and yeah. of the Apollo program in particular. It's probably fair to say. I
1: was certainly very familiar with this before the film came out. I didn't actually see the yes. film when it came out, but you know, I, I, there, there would no, there would have been no particular surprises because, yeah.
0: Yes, and, and same with me. Perhaps when I first saw the film, I was less familiar with the actual story of Apollo 13, but I'm certainly, uh, quite au fait with it now. I, um, so, largely because of the podcast and other things I've uh, listened to and read. Um, so this is the story of the ill-fated um, Apollo 13 mission, the successful failure, um, <laughs> as it was called in that it was the, uh, the third mission that was due to land on the moon to a largely apathetic by then public because after, you know, a year after you've landed on the moon it clearly becomes fairly routine and dull which um, always surprises me. But, um, Oh, maybe it doesn't. But that's human's you. But um, a catastrophic mixing of the oxygen tanks leads to um, some problems for the crew of Apollo 13 and rapidly they uh, abort the original mission and just want to get home in one piece and ideally not one big flat piece. Um, or or a very scorchy piece. <laughs> or a crispy piece in lots and lots of different bits. Um, and it's really the story of... Uh, the astronauts on board the ship and mission control and their attempts to solve the problems of Apollo 13 uh, of which them were many um, and to mm. keep the astronauts alive long enough to see if they could even survive re-entry. Um, and there's really not a huge amount more to that. It really does dwell on the astronauts and mission control with a relatively slender side thread of um, Jim Lovell's wife, um, yeah. But uh, and, and almost she seems to be there for the human connection, his wife and his children. But really, we are on the ship for the most part, and we are in mission control, and hmm. there's not a lot else. And I think that's the first thing I would say I do appreciate about that this film. It really does. Uh, it doesn't add a lot more to it. It doesn't try to contextualise it too much. It just tells the story. I mean, it does... Put it in context and it's – and I think quite rightly, you know, it starts with the discussion of the Apollo 1 fire Mm. Um, and I think that's – you know, there were disasters that had happened before. There were certainly disasters on the Russian side as well. They just were not nearly so well known because the Russians not so public about their um, own – uh, spaceport fires and, um, re-entry. I don't think the re-entry disasters had happened by now. I think they were more
1: Soyuz mm. and
0: that sort of the thing. The
1: Soviet one, I don't remember when that was.
0: I think it was after this, but yeah. I could forget. But they'd certainly had, um, uh, a number of deaths, uh, uh, for exactly the same reason Apollo 1 and enriched oxygen and a fire within it. Um, uh, so it starts with, with the, the, that, and then glosses quite quickly over Apollo 11, and fairly shortly we are in the the last few days uh, leading up to the launch of Apollo 13.
1: Yeah, I, I think we should look at the antecedents of, of this particular story, because I think that does feed into what the film is like. Yes. Um, so this, it, it is primarily a filming of Lovell's book, uh, Lost yes. Moon. Yes, uh, is, Now, yeah. immediately after, uh, spoiler, they survived, uh, <laughs> Immediately yes. after the events they, they did talk about writing a book together but then things didn't happen and they went went their separate ways. Uh right. so, so the uh, book didn't get written So Swigert died of cancer in nineteen eighty two uh and Fred Hayes was no longer interested in doing this stuff. So this is basically Lovell's book. I mean he he did it with a journalist, but it's it is bas he is the primary source yeah uh, so I mean I don't want to accuse him of conscious bias, but I think unconsciously, if you're telling a story where you're the you are one of the guys who was there and the other guys are not there, <laughs> you end up thinking of yourself as slightly better than you were or at least more important than you were. I know I know I do this. So, you know.
0: Yeah, or at least uh, you uh, if not so much better, you put yourself more in the forefront of the story. Yeah. If nothing, even if you're critical of yourself or whatever, you become much more of a protagonist.
1: And um, and of course in a film that is trying to be effective fiction as well as effective documentary, you want you really want a lead character and that that reinforces this.
0: It does. And I suppose that is um that is certainly true of the film, that uh, however you feel about Lovell is the, the hero character here. He's, he's not quite... I, you know, we talked a bit offline because when I first started it, I, it irked me a little bit because there's a feeling of kind of smugness and self-satisfaction a little bit at the beginning of the film that felt a bit similar to the way our friend Chuck Yeager was treated in The mm. Right Stuff. And, um, and
1: again, where he was the primary source for the book yes. that then became the film.
0: Well, so fairly rapidly, my irritation of that faded away because I, I suppose, you know, these men did get to the moon and were incredibly accomplished and did accomplish one of the greatest feats of science and engineering of humanity to this point. So to some extent, there's an element of... You can um, do a bit of um, cock ringing there. Um, it still irritates me because I'm British, <laughs> 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 I suppose. Um, but I... I Actually, I felt once things start to go wrong, there was some of it, particularly in the, um, Gene Kranz, um, I've forgotten the actor now. This is one of the few films where I'm going Ed to Harris. remember, the, thank you, I'm going to remember the characters more than I remember the actors. But Ed Harris's character, um, I don't know, it's the bit that's always in the advert, the kind of, we've never lost an American in space and we have certainly got to lose one on my watch. And that's, that's actually not most of his performance, to be fair, hmm. but that kind of jingoistic stuff, does irritate me. That's probably a cultural background thing to me. The,
1: the other thing is, I mean, it, it's not fair of me to think of Tom Hanks' more recent career, but if, if he is typecast at all, I think mm. it is as the good guy who does the thing that is right and prevails thereby.
0: He, yeah. I mean, he is again, he was coming. I mean, when I was growing up, Tom Hanks, we'll talk about, this is our first Tom Hanks movie, yeah. isn't it? But mm. he is, he has become the go-to reliable Good guy. When I was growing up, he was a, a comedy actor. You know, Splash is what I mainly remember him hmm. and yeah so, and that at, sort of thing. At
1: this point, he he'd been in Splash, which is which is basically a romantic comedy. He'd been okay. in Philadelphia, which we talked about briefly in the Cold of Schindler's List. Yeah, f- yes. first first film to be a really big production that that dared to mention AIDS. Yes. Uh, I don't. I mean, he he was a name, but I don't think he was a a huge name. Not. Not before.
0: I mean, he was in Big, and I think yeah. that was quite yeah.
1: big. Um, but he was but, also in Turner and Hooch and Joe Versus the Volcano. So
0: you know, he, he was becoming in it, but he wasn't the name he is now. And I don't think he was quite at Apollo thirteen, though. I
1: think he. was Oh, to be fair,
0: Forrest Gump, previous year. Okay, yeah, Forrest. Yes, we've forgotten. Uh, probably both willfully forgotten, Forrest. Gump. We, we, yeah, it just
1: irks me conceptually so much that I tend to forget it exists. But it had a yeah. huge impact on. Everybody's fame who's involved with it, so. Well,
0: that was the year before this, wasn't it? Um, hmm. uh, yeah, I think probably as a response of the response of that he really was approaching superstar. Um, and it's interesting because his Forrest Gump character is not that type of character. And here, uh, maybe this is the start of his kind of reliable American competent and decent characters that do well thereby. And he's played variations on it, and he's good Mm. at that. But this is his stereotypical character, and he really is playing up to that character now. You know, you don't get much more All-American
1: than Yeah, and being being fair, no actor has a universal range, except um, Michael Caine, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Apart from him, basically, everybody has roles they're better at and roles they're worse at. And knowing the roles you do well is, is an acting skill in itself.
0: Yes, exactly. And so he doesn't... Um, I, I suppose I do find Hanks in this kind of mode a little bit forgettable. Um, a little bit... Uh, I don't know. It's he's, he's a little bit bland and a little bit unexciting. Uh, and I suppose that's the idea of these kind of roles. But because of that, it's hard to think this is an amazing acting job. Mm. And that's partially, I think, because he's acted this role again and again. Um, I, well, sure does. also
1: compared with the other two in the ship, he is relatively flat. I mean, they, they are allowed yeah. to get, they are allowed to have their outbursts, and he's the one who he he can look a bit mournful, but his job is basically to be dad and bring them back, bring them back on course.
0: Yeah, and and to be fair, I mean that is, I mean if anything, well this is what I want to talk about a little bit. You know, there is it is well. It, <laughs> I'm trying not to get too bogged down with the historical accuracy. Um, because... we, we, we can, we
1: can have, have a fest on that later, if you like. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Shall, shall we talk some more about some, some of the people involved? Because Ron Howard yes, all right, is, yes. is an interesting figure at this Ron
0: point. Ron Howard, yes, yeah. I mean, I mean
1: he f- first came to people's attention, I think, as uh, playing Richie Cunningham in Happy Days. That's certainly where I, you know, this was that was one of the shows that was on uh, late afternoon in, in
0: the UK, mm-hmm. and I would watch it after school. Yeah. Um, I don't really uh, understand what it was kind of make a comedy about, but still enjoy it.
1: But big films he didn't, or big-ish films he have been involved with, Splash, they just mentioned, uh, Cocoon, Willow. Oh yeah. Backdraft.
0: Did he direct Willow? Yeah. I always thought that was George Lucas. I guess he just wrote it. <laughs> um, oh, so right, I like, I've got a big soft spot for Willow. It's much better than
1: its reputation, I think. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's definitely got some re- reasonably serious credentials, but, I don't know, don't, don't... He, he's, he's, he's done a fair few things since, but I, I don't want to say this is his high point, point. I'm not sure he would agree that this is his high point, but this, this is the big one, as far as I'm concerned, looking look at his list. I mean, I, after this, me. he does think, uh, Frost Nixon, pretty good, apparently, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, I'd like but, to. But also um, The Da Vinci Code, and Angels and Demons, and, you know. <laughs> so,
0: also with Tom Hanks. Um, uh, I th- I suppose my problem with Ron Howard is he he sort of blends in with Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis as the kind of slightly fantastical, feel-good American stuff. Mm. Um, but he's not quite as exciting as either. In my head, and this is probably unfair, but in my head, a Ron Howard film is going to be competent and not too risk-takey and fairly unexciting. That's probably mm. unfair, but it there's nothing sort of flashy uh about my thoughts about him, and that might be unfair, because I think Apollo 13 er, genuinely has some very good moments. Um, well, I, I
1: think there may be two separate axes here. I mean, on the one level, there is filmmaking competence. You know, mm. do you, do you make sure that the story holds together... Um, the scenes are in, in a sensible order, all that kind of thing. And, yeah. and on a separate access, almost there, access, there is, there is how much do you do in terms of personal touches and how, how much, I mean, you, you look at a Spike Lee shot and you can probably yes. say this is a Spike Lee shot. Yes. Um, simply because that's the sort of stuff, that's the style he directs in. Yes. And I don't think that that is true of On Howard, even though, you know, there is nothing in here that I would object to on a technical filmmaking level. It works very well. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that we're both sort of circling around the same point, are we, really? That it's it's competent, but not very, yeah, not very personalised, you're quite right. And, and not doesn't take a lot of risks, and it does work. Like, for instance, Martin Scorsese, you know his films, even Spielberg. And I only say Spielberg cautiously because there is a Spielberg film, but then he does other, as we know, with Schindler's Lift. Mm. He can also very competently uh, and, you know, more than competently step out of that it, it may have taken him a while to learn it but he certainly can and does um hmm. uh, but Ron Howard I don't know this, this doesn't feel dramatically different in terms of cinema than Splash in a way <laughs> oh, say, I, I admit it? I've
1: never seen it but um
0: uh, but yeah it's it's yeah I agree it's um no signature on it and maybe that's not a bad thing not all films need to or at have least not a to- lot And and not all films have to have the director sort of waving their opinions in your face, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, We've talked about Tarantino films and they are immediately recognisable, which for some is great and for others is is less good. So uh, we're not against the idea, I I think it's fair to say, but he doesn't, yeah, (laughs) Uh, less thrilling, less
1: signature. Now, I must admit, I had a problem watching this um, because of Gary Sinise, not because I dislike him, I think he's a jolly good actor, but I watched him in nine seasons of CSI New York, which obviously made many years (laughs) after this, and he he is very clearly the same guy.
0: Well, we'll talk about. I don't Rage mean the same well.
1: role but he's the same guy he has that very distinctive face it's very hard not to see him as that it's, other character
0: and he's a very good actor but I agree he, he's always Gary Sinise I mean I suppose, where do I know Gary Sinise I, I enjoyed The Stand, the mini season of The Stand where he plays the mini series which is like four episodes or something where he's Stu Redman um, who's like the main character in The Stand um, he is in Forrest Gump which I haven't really seen but yes he's um he's not far
1: from his sort of standard type um, mm. And in some ways, well, that, most of the people here are quietly confident, or some, sometimes a bit boastfully confident. It, it is the primary characterization, and that, that's not wildly off, as far as I can see. Yeah, well, and in some way, that's
0: the problem. I, I was about to say that, that all these characters are variations on the same type of character. Even in Mission Control, they're uh, they may not have the athleticism, but they're all know what they're talking about, and they know their stuff, and they take it seriously, mm-hmm. and they're competent, and they're not prone to histrionics or hysterics. Again, we'll talk about that <laughs> later, I, I suspect. Um, but because of that, the ones who don't have a lot of personal... I mean, the biggest thing we have about Ken Mattingly, um, as Gary Sinise is playing, is that he's annoyed that he doesn't get on the ship. hmm but he takes it on the chin and he takes it competently just as Jim Lovell does when the ship half blows up and leaves them uh almost powerless and oxygenless in space. Um so they 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 play it fairly flat. Um he looks a bit grumpy. Um but then he comes in and, and helps his crewmen home. And it's a, it's I wouldn't say it's a memorable performance, but it is mm. yeah, I agree. Uh, and we have, uh, other, speaking of other actors, and we're not going to talk about, uh, female actors very much here. Well, there are many of them, and they don't do very we, um, much.
1: She,
0: well, exactly. I mean, uh, to uh, to so- be
1: fair, the, the actual Marilyn Lovell did apparently approve of her portrayal in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one's got to say, I mean, it's kind of one note. She is, she is brave and she is scared and she is stoic, and that's pretty much it.
0: Yeah, much like everyone else (laughs) in the film. She just juxtaposes it by being... um...
1: So, I mean, it doesn't make her look like an idiot, but it also doesn't make her into much of a character.
0: Exactly. She doesn't want him to go into space, but of course she'll let him because... Yeah, exactly. And so we we don't have a hugely exciting acting performance there. Um, Well, we can talk about... um... Uh, Ed Harris as Gene Kranz, who wasn't, uh, well again, I'll, t- I'll try and avoid too much, but Gene Kranz wasn't in charge of mission control for the whole mission, of course. Well,
1: because... yeah, I mean, th- this broadens out a bit because there are, there are, there are obviously changes from reality. Uh, mm. it's got to fit in a however long it is film. Um, yeah. The thing that is very obviously a change for filming is, yeah, you you compress a group of people who did something into a single individual who did something because that makes more sense on screen. Yes. Um, But the thing that irked me was this idea that you've just got the one mission control team and every time we're in yeah. mission control, we see the same people. I mean, there were four shifts.
0: I think that's worth... I, I Again, I think there's a story to tell there, that how well they handled it, how well the, the team in the middle... Uh, you know, the team where it happened to, I can't, I, well, I don't even... It was White it Shift
1: was. who were on, White it Team was, who were on when, when they the destination happened.
0: pretty shortly after, because they were t- coming towards the end of their shift. Yeah. Um, and it was, as much as they didn't want to, Um, they were relieved because they realised it was the right thing to do. And I think that's an intro, but I I suppose- mean, let's that,
1: bear in mind that this is um, four six-hour shifts in a day. Yeah. Because you can't concentrate <laughs> for that long.
0: And the only reason the astronauts did was because they, you know, they didn't have a different shift.
1: Um, but the thing is, I mean, compressing a group of people into a single heroic individual, okay, but then using the name of one of those people and making it look as if they were the guy who did everything. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it just leaves me feeling a bit uncomfortable. I, I mean, I know it's, it's fictionalised, uh, yeah. but it's it's too easy to believe.
0: Well, the other slightly frustrating, if we're talking about mission, I mean, Ed Harris' performance is, it's, Good. Again, it's much like all the others. He's he's very confident. <laughs> he's very determined. He's the slightly more confident of them, and he's the one. Who, but um, uh, and I think Gene Kranz was the most senior of all the mission controllers, which might be why they picked him. To yeah, be yeah, there. yeah. He um, he was
1: basically um the head of White Team. Yeah, and, yeah, and White um, Team was the lead team insofar um, as they had one.
0: The the other thing that's slightly irksome is you know behind each one of those people at the desk. There was a whole team of people helping them, which comes across a little bit, but a lot of those team uh were female in in the attitude mm. and they you know it would have been a nice opportunity to show that, but it does it doesn't i know it was very male dominated and, and this
1: also... this is not one flight surgeon who's decided that these are the rules and he's throwing his weight around. he is yeah. one flight surgeon plus his entire medical staff. Who have collectively, with the rest of the medical staff and the team leaders, agreed that these are what the rules are.
0: Exactly, and I, that again so another—we're we're slightly nitpicky now, but we might as well head into nitpicky territory. Well, I, I think did,
1: by making it's reducing everything to personal conflict. Exactly, which and makes they made for a the dramatic flight film. surgeon
0: a bit of a dick. Yeah. Um, or uh, and that's not fair. You know, there was a good reason why you don't want your. Pilot to go down with German measles while you are 250,000 miles away from Earth. You know, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not an ideal situation. Are, are uh, they,
1: particularly you know, given he was CM pilot and the rendezvous with the returning lunar module relies on an active CM pilot. It cannot be done only from the LM.
0: Yes, it's one of the few and, and he, he would have been. In theory, at the, and no, he didn't go down with Rubella in the end, but that the point was there was a risk of it. And they had had form for that. It was it Apollo, uh, seven, where they all got a cold while they were on the mission. And it turns mm. out having a cold in orbit is not that much fun. And they were <laughs> a difficult crew to manage. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the flight said, you know, when there's that moment when they all rip their biofeedbacks which does, I think, did happen. Actually, it was accurate, but, um,
1: uh. Yeah. it's very hard to point at actual inaccuracies beyond the trivial detail because they go to such trouble to say yeah no look you can you can get this on the tape this is the thing that was actually there
0: well that's it we can talk maybe we should segue well there's a couple of other uh characters to talk about and that's the other two astronauts um we have um uh we have bill paxton returning lovely always lovely to see bill paxton Mm -hmm. um and again he, he is one of the characters that gets a bit more personality um his personality is that he gets ill <laughs> I, I mean during the, during the flight um and he uh he, in a way Kevin Bacon um gets the sort of Bill Paxton role cuz or or the one that you might have assumed the, was the guy Paxton. who's going to break under the strain Exactly yeah the the, the cocky kind of um uh hotshot uh, uh, so we have Bill Paxton who, who basically gets ill and uh, I I, but... I just
1: want in my head cannon, during that launch sequence, I can hear Bill Paxton saying, "One express elevator to hell going up." I just really <laughs> hope he said that at some point during filming. It seems such a shame if he didn't.
0: That would be, yeah. I hope he did. He, he certainly seems the type of character that would have done. Um, and again, he plays a uh, uh, stoic under pressure, but also with cystitis, um, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> uh, which. Not, and then we have Kevin Bacon returning, who gets the sort of the, the cocky hotshot. Rookie, they call him a few times. I'm not sure that I, I, I've certainly never read that. But why he's a rookie when he's got exactly the same level of flight experience of of the other pilots on board, i.e., none, hmm. um, except for Jim Lovell was the only one who'd actually been in orbit, i've uh, been up and round the moon. Um, uh, well, we can talk about the inaccuracies, but yeah, they, they are solid performances. Um, yeah. I I think in some ways we keep circling around my slight issue with Apollo 13 is that it's all solid and it's well done. It's not. I'm pleased to see it because I'm very interested in the subject. Um, But in a way, nowadays, maybe this is because I'm getting more old, uh, getting more older, uh, because I'm older, I I get more from the actual facts rather than the dramatization of the facts.
1: Mm. Um, Or, you know the the audio with commentary or yes a, a really good documentary and I think where where this thing deviates from reality it does it in favour of making it more filmy yeah and more filmy uh, is yeah. not necessary though there is an exception to that and where the, and this really struck me when I found myself listening to the soundtrack um is that the right sorry the score is the proper the term the score yes um James Horner uh And what what he seems to me to be doing is mixing, you know, liturgical music straight out of the hymnal with military bugle motifs. Yeah. yeah, And once I noticed that, I I got the feeling that the direction was also trying to say, yeah, what what we have here is religious awe with a side note of patriotism. Right. Yeah. And I don't like the religious angle of it. (laughs) That's me. I'm not... not, not in favor of religious stuff in general, but yeah, I mean, that there is this stuff that is just pretty damn impressive anyway. I don't think you need to say gosh, wow, as well. Yeah. I don't yes. but, Well, clearly this is not the case because, um, you know, there, there were people who, who reckoned this wasn't, this was not an important thing to be doing and not significant thing to be doing. Uh, that, that guy who says, um, you know, why, why are you bothering to keep doing this? Yeah. Uh, cameo by Roger Corman.
0: Oh really? Wow! Oh, that's a nice uh, that's a nice cameo. I did not realise that.
1: Um, be nice to see- be to be fair to the film, I I was not aware of the um public apathy. Uh, right, yeah. Point of this mission, and they they certainly made a point about that. And certainly, it does seem in reality to to have pepped things up again. And you you might see somebody die. you'd Better watch this one.
0: Well, exactly. That's the sad truth that it became this huge, became the most popular, the second most popular Apollo flight. It was by Apollo 11, which caught the public amount. Even by Apollo 12, people were switching off and it's routine and boring. And that is the eternal problem NASA will always have. You know, If the Artemis program ever gets off the ground, which I, I, I have some significant doubts, although probably not the only one, um, it will become routine fairly soon. Um, As the Space Shuttle did As the Space Shuttle did Um, uh, There is a big danger in that Um, I mean the the interesting thing about Apollo 13 Sorry I'm waxing lyrical about the actual situation now Is that it was doomed before it took off Because that oxygen canister uh, What I would have liked to see the film start with someone dropping the oxygen canister Because that's how it broke Basically someone dropped it Um, Uh, Either
1: that or the um, heating to scavenge the liquid oxygen out of it
0: or both yes. um basically eroded but the the ship was doomed from the moment it was built the second they stirred that it was it was going to happen and uh maybe I would have liked to see that a bit more but i i suppose the other argument is they didn't understand or know what was happening at the time and that only came out of the very extensive inquests mm. uh afterwards um well yeah so we we you have um, we we've, we've been talking about the where it deviates from reality and, and where it does Is in the favor of the dramatic. Um, Mm. And that, I can see why. I can see, um, I can see to make it more filming. To me though, knowing the actual audio, you know, when you're hearing. Uh, oh, he seems to be venting something out in space very matter of factly, mm. and no one picks up on it, and it takes a while for them to understand why venting something out in space may be a bad thing, and you don't hear any panic in any of the voices, and they're all mm. like, Roger that. When you do hear them actually starting to worry, when their voice just cracks a little bit, to me that's so much more impressive than them panicking straight away.
1: Yeah, and uh, to be fair, it's also a very rare thing on film. Um, if you, if you, um, Listen to you know, test pilots' uh, cockpit audio, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very much the same. I mean, obviously, these guys were test pilots or yes, similar yeah. levels of skill. Um, and it, it's very much, uh, yeah. Okay, I, I have I have realised that I'm probably going to die sometime in the next thirty seconds or so. But until that point, I have a job to do, and that <laughs> is to say exactly what has gone wrong with this aircraft, so that the next guy doesn't have to die in it.
0: Yes, and that starts with Chuck Yeager doing his his kind of Mac um uh, uh Uh. is is breaking of the sound barrier right through to Apollo 30 and uh, the the if you were listen to those those that audio out of context it's quite dull mm. actually there there is none of the drama you know even and that is you know the epitome of that is the houston we've had a problem um instead of we've got a problem you know they even had to sex up the tense of it to make it sound mm-hmm. more
1: immediately dramatic um cuz the actual line was we've had a problem Yeah. And, and of course they, they made up failure is not an option for the film. I mean, Gene Grant loved it. He called his autobiography that. But it was invented here. Yes.
0: And that, in a way, that's a problem as well, because although this film comes across as, yes, they're extremely competent. They really know this stuff. It also makes NASA look a lot more prepared, less, sorry, a lot less prepared than they were. You know, the LEM lifeboat idea had been mooted. There was a protocol for it. No one expected to have to use it, Mm -hmm. but, because they'd plumbed just about every possible failure option that they could think of and then some, um, there was a protocol, there was a written protocol for how to make the
1: the Lem a lifeboat. Um Yeah, as I understand it, the the, the thing in, that was happening was not uh can we think of a thing that will help? It was yes, are yes. we going to do this, thus irretrievably scrubbing the actual chance of a moon landing?
0: That's right, yeah, yeah. And also the worry was, is there enough... Which, again, comes across nicely in the film. If we shut down the um, command module, we got enough power to turn it back on again because it had to use at least some power to to get them in the right position so they wouldn't die on re-entry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, again, I mean, it gets a lot right, but it... Yeah, it, thing, um,
1: things like the we've never actually done a cold start of the CMSM from, yes, using the lunar module power. Yeah, this, this yeah. is genuine. I, I, I very much like that.
0: Yeah. And it, yes, we know how to do it in theory. We've just never tried it and it's terrifying. Um, and we still don't quite know what broke back there. I would
1: just like to say on the audio thing, one of the very few films that I've, I've, that's set in space that does get this right is Red Planet, oddly enough. Uh, okay, which is right, not yeah. a film I, I would recommend in most respects. I mean, the the stuff on the surface is frankly disposable to me, but yes. you've got uh, one astronaut in orbit. Dealing with the slightly bugged spacecraft and reporting on, you know, okay, we do do now seem to be on fire. Uh, <laughs>
0: yes, yeah.
1: And just doing the, in in the completely calm. Yes, all right. Yes, yes, I realise I'm screwed, but that is going saying that is going to cost valuable syllables that I could be using to convey information.
0: Yes, exactly, so that no one else finds, even if I'm dead, hopefully no one else will ever find themselves in this position again if I mm-hmm. do my job correctly. Um and in a, I suppose... Also the problem, played by Carrie Anne Moss, which doesn't hurt, but, you know. Well, I'm not going to about anything with Carrie Anne Moss. Um, I wonder if we should talk about The Matrix at some point. Anyway, um, probably not the sequels. Um, um, I, uh, I've lost my train of thought now, other than to say the problem with them kind of sexing up the drama of the communications with mission control, which is what I'm familiar with, because as you say, you can actually listen to those audios, mm-hmm. so you can tell they're much more dramatic. Um, and and as I say, but aside from one problem is that it makes it look like it was all utterly improvised, and they still managed to get it right. And while they were doing a lot of things on the fly, a lot of it had been prepared for, because the amount of preparation that NASA had undergone for these missions was unbelievable hmm. um, and unprecedented and even these kind of things and they hadn't actually simulated this problem but they still had thought about it or similar situations and so it wasn't as holy shit what are we actually going to do this is worse than anything we'd ever thought of that they still had some idea of how to handle it yeah i
1: mean you've got people both in the vehicle and on the ground who know the systems of the vehicle inside out yes
0: yes exactly um uh, and that of course is i mean that's good uh, it's good for drama because they actually understand you know how serious it is if they get a gimbal lock or you know whatever they're talking about and and in some to some extent i understand why they have to dramatize it like gimbal lock we're getting close to gimbal lock because otherwise the audience would just wouldn't it would just pass them by that there even was a crisis at that point mm. um or or you know in in many of of the other situations um but my problem with it, them sort of sexing up, not much, but making it more dramatic, is then it makes the, the interactions with the crew when the radios are off, then I just kind of don't believe it, and, mm. and that's, you know, I don't know anything about that other than, you know, there probably were some moments where they were
1: having difficult times. And but, probably... but it also sounds as if it's been written by a different guy, because it has. Exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's um. It's it makes me less connected to the astronauts in a way because I don't really, I don't quite believe any of it because I know the bits that I have seen I know wasn't wasn't quite right and that pulls me out of it believing that this is what actually happened.
1: Though, and let's see, this this is ninety five, so I mean it's twenty five years twenty twenty five years after the events. Yes. And I suspect a lot of people just didn't know anything more than the vague outline of that. We, we yeah. are not. The, we are not the target audience. I mean, I'm the sort of person who sees that brief flash of a switch where it says LES motor fire, and my I instantly think, okay, yeah, launch escape system. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah we, um, we per, had. Per, we have seen the right stuff, <laughs> and so on.
0: Yeah, Um and this. I mean, I again, we're being nitpicky, but. In some ways it is a film that lends itself to nitpickiness because it is so, it wears its authenticness on its sleeve. And I, I think it's, I'm trying to think of other true to life stories we've watched. I remember saying this one's the truest to life that we've watched that was based on a true story. I can't remember which one that was, but <laughs> it's probably been replaced by this one because I think as accurate as you could possibly be for a just over two hour film, they really are, I guess. Is it? And, and we've talked about, you know, the changing shift, but there wasn't time to introduce a whole new range of characters, and they needed some kind of shorthand. Mm-hmm. Um, they need a way to get drama across to the audience. So I understand all the changes. Um, it just makes me a little. And, and they're not—they're not huge changes for the most part. They're very accurate.
1: And in terms of films that were supposed to be real events, uh, *Dance with a Stranger*. Um, oh yes. *Good Morning Vietnam*.
0: Oh yes, that wasn't too accurate. Was it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, we
0: had Bonnie and Clyde, and um, uh, uh, um, the first film that we talked about that I forgot, Badlands. Badlands, yeah. Um, well, you know, we have never done a flat-out documentary. We probably should at mm. some point. Um, but this is, this is very close, and and so that just makes the the differences a little more jarring if you know a lot about the subject. Um, I suppose we're probably both of the opinion the story is fascinating and amazing enough in itself that you don't you don't need to gel, jazz it up too much. But to be fair, they did well, jazz it up Well, that's that's certainly the much,
1: way though. I feel. But then I'm not a hugely successful film director, so.
0: Well, that's that's fair, and there's probably a reason. As you say, we're probably not the target audience because, in many ways, we'd rather read. What happened and listen to the audio than watch a dramatization of it. But maybe, you know, all those years ago, watching a dramatization of it made me, I think I probably wasn't aware of how much of a disaster it was when I first watched this film. So it may be this film that piqued my interest in it. Um, it's hard to remember because it was a long time ago. <laughs> and, and maybe that's why I know a lot more about it. So it's a bit hard for me to then retrospectively, uh, dig on it for that
1: um <laughs> yeah I'm, i can't help noticing li- little things like oh the, the, you know, the astronaut hero walk
0: yeah which,
1: which wasn't originated here i mean they did it in the right stuff yeah but yeah. i when i saw it this time and i thought armageddon and of course armageddon <laughs> is three years after this and the more i watched this the more i realized how much i mean it's very clear how much armageddon was inspired by this. They they're using a lot of the same visual grammar. Yeah. Which not having seen playable. this I didn't know when I saw Armageddon.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. That this is um but a, a lot of this stuff is um I suppose Shinders List was the other one we were talking about that is very true to life and that's mm. shot sure. They're mm. both similar in the way that Shinder's List was shot in a way that it could have looked like documentary footage from the time. And that's true of Apollo 13 too, um, except the fidelity is way better than you would get in the,
1: the 60s. But it's Yeah, I mean, modular film quality and stuff, but yeah.
0: And I think there was some reasonable amount of CGI here as CGI was starting to develop um, that looks quite realistic. You know, like the ice falling off the Saturn V as it, it takes off and that sort of thing, which mm-hmm. I remember seeing a documentary where they were very proud of that. And it's, it, it <laughs> is, it is it does look like a, a proper... I mean, the... As far as the visual effects go, that's a, it, it's a good film in that regard yeah. because you don't really notice them, honestly. You, you just, uh, did you, did any of them draw you out of it and make you think, oh, this is no, a film, not really? It. No, and that, we, we are very familiar with how it actually looks and I think they're really very accurate. I, I mean, it, they're lucky in some ways. at the end, they know exactly what they have to make it look like and then they can just make it look slightly better. But they do, they do really visually. It's incredibly accurate. I'm sure there are little problems. Like I think right, i read somewhere the coffee maker that he points to when he says you've got about enough energy to run this coffee maker, and that's a coffee maker from the 70s, not the 60s, uh, <laughs> from the late 70s, not the, not the 1970.
1: Um, yeah, but I mean, what they obviously it, it's very helpful here. I mean, even more than with Dust Boat, they had a hell of a lot of documentation and actual example vehicles to study. Yes, and. They they were prepared to take the time and the money to say yes, this is going to be as accurate as we can make it.
0: Yes, and it what was the budget on it? It, it, it was a, a real um, uh, uh, I was say AAA film, but a real
1: blockbuster, uh, the, the... fifty odd million, which was you know high at the time. Okay, but... so it's it's not
0: certainly a long way from the most expensive.
1: Terminator Two, a few years earlier, was famously the first hundred million dollar film.
0: Right. Okay. So it. um uh so it wasn't bonkers money, but it, it looks its incredibly visually accurate. It's interesting, actually. Das Boot's not a bad, to slightly go back to our kind of sexing it up and, and the tension and things. Das Boat, I think, had me more tense than on the edge of my seat. Mm. That's probably because I know how Apollo 13 ends. But that doesn't always stop you feeling tense. I, I feel like in Das Boat that... Maybe I'm misremembering, because there certainly are emotional shots of people looking very scared that they're going to die, but it it didn't feel over the top sexed up there in a way and mm. be, I, there's an argument why you know that the soldiers in death's Boat, they're not highly trained professionals um who've been training for this for years and years and years um they the kids basically are very good at what they're doing with it you know that the granddad is is thirty years old um but it I, there it kind of it sold me in a way that Apollo 13 just didn't I think what I'm circling round in a way is I think Apollo 13 is great mm. and it draws me in and I really enjoy the subject matter I think it's very compet- competently done but ultimately at the end of it I don't uh, it, it didn't really thrill me or stand out or leave me with anything other than a feeling of well that was a good story well told
1: It's all very well done, and, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't grab me by the heart.
0: No. And in a way, you know, I wasn't the hugest fan of, um, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, but it, you know, it's, it's got more. Heart to it, or emotion, or something. I, I mentioned that because that's one of the reasons. And you know, even Stuart Gordon's films, which we discussed, in our lab, I don't know. This this just feels a little maybe sterile is the word that it's it's all so well
1: done. Um, I, I wonder if the the problem is we've we've got a single scale from because uh, we, we've just been praising the, the stuff that is based on the tapes where, where they're being yeah. all calm and collected and talking sensibly. I, yeah. I wonder whether in the Hollywood think that lack of histrionics goes along with a cold, non-heartful approach.
0: Yes, that's right. And so maybe they feel like, well, people would think they weren't human if they were behaving like that. Um, whereas it's quite understandable, given all... Yeah, yeah, perhaps so, that they had to answer. I don't it all felt a bit kind of... And it's quite... I mean, the Apollo programme is one of the greatest achievements uh, maybe i mean maybe i'm coming at this slightly jaded given <laughs> the current state of the space program you know i absolutely love the space program i i get frustrated when i hear you know how can we be spending all this money on a space program when you know there are many social and economic problems here on earth as if the money would be immediately transferred to transported towards fixing racism or feeding people uh, or lifting people out of poverty uh, and you know the american defense budget is not singled out for a
1: similar i, I seem to remember at the peak of the apollo uh, program it was just about touching one percent of the u.s federal budget
0: I, exactly so I, I get it it's a huge very flashy holy shit how much that cost but i i'm often irritated by that argument and yet we have in the last few years had the images of the grinning images of Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos flying into space, um, knowing how particularly uh, Jeff Bezos's workers are treated. Um, and that's a hard thing to feel good about, I must say. And it's slightly jaded me on the whole idea of the space program in that I love I think humanity needs to extend to the stars. We've got to become multi-planet species or we are vulnerable, ultimately. Um, But if Mars is going to be populated populated by all of Elon Musk's mates, then I don't know. That loses a bit of its appeal to me.
1: I mean, one, one, one tries to avoid thinking of humanity is a plague that is trying to spread outside its own petri dish.
0: <laughs> well, that was the other... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I've I've grown to like humans more over time. Um, I, there was a period in my 20s when I just thought, well, just we should all die. But, you know, there's not many species are capable of the good we are capable of. And, unfortunately, 20s. they didn't let you
1: in the uh, microbiology lab at that point.
0: <laughs> they didn't. Um and yet, I have called on the space programme, or at least the current form of the space programme, and maybe that has made me feel less excited about the jingoism of the Apollo programme, which it honestly probably is well-deserved.
1: Well, I've got a quote from a recent developer, by Becky Chambers, here. Um, what is space to you? Is it a playground? A quarry? A flagpole? A classroom? A temple? Who do you believe should go, and for what purpose, or should we go at all? And I think because the traditionally it's been taking a whole lot of money and you need to get a whole bunch of people agreeing. Yeah. Those questions don't get asked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think they should be answered in public to try and inspire. And again, we are, uh, we're lucky enough to live in democracies or um, what's left of them. Um, and, yeah, I, I think they should be justified by and to the public. I just, I do want people to be excited about space. Um And films like this go a long way to helping with that, Um mm. I think. They do inspire people about space. It is not
1: the film's sense. fault that we are not the target audience for it. Exactly, yeah.
0: So perhaps we're being a bit <laughs> cool. But I think that's where I come down to ultimately on Apollo 13 is that it leaves me slightly unexpectedly flat and uninspired It just feels like safe, confident filmmaking that doesn't really have a lot to say other than this is a story I want to tell and I'm telling it. And there shouldn't really be anything wrong with that, but it it leaves me, for some
1: reason, a little cold. Mm. That's... uh, Clearly we're in a minority there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: In in terms
1: of Masterpiece, uh, I think I have to say yes. It didn't quite grab me, but so much of it is very good indeed.
0: Yeah. I I'm completely with you. Yeah, really that I it's hard to argue it's not a masterpiece. It's it's so accurate, so well done. Uh yeah, and the fact that it leaves us a little cold maybe says a bit more about us um than it does about the film. Not that the film is without <laughs> its faults, but it's it's very good. It is a very good film. And was it inspirational? I, I think in a way it probably did inspire a lot of people to become excited about the space program again, because by the mid-90s, uh, the shuttle hadn't retired, but it was, it was, uh, when, when... It was clearly it, never Dis- going
1: to make its schedules.
0: It was never going to, and Discovery, was it 99 Discovery, yeah, um, blew up, Um uh, oh, sorry, not Discovery, it was, um uh, Columbia. Challenger. Challenger was the first one in the 80s, which I well remember. It was Columbia, I think, was the last one that was kind of the final nail in the yeah. coffin. Uh, that was uh,
1: post 2000, I think. Oh, well,
0: was it? Okay. But it never felt like the space program. It was, I mean, there are many reasons why the space shuttle <laughs> the program was not good, which we won't go into here, though we have a slight rant about it um, after the right stuff, as, as I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, I go, think go and prob- listen to that one. Listen to that one to hear more about the space shuttle. Um, but yeah, I think it was inspirational in a lot of ways. Was it influential on later film? Probably.
1: Um, I think so. Well, as I say, um, clearly Armageddon and a lot of things imitated Armageddon. Yes, uh, yes. but but I think also now th- this may just be my my relative lack of exposure because as as I said before I wasn't wasn't watching a lot of film at about this time, um, but. I think it was one of the first films to say okay we can actually do realistic space yeah and not lose the audience
0: and yes and, and I suppose the other thing is we can do uh genuinely a real true to life story and find uh find the hollywood in it <laughs> um but not mm. not change it too much and, and really not not be that free and easy with the facts um yeah, they certainly put your, their spin on it, but that's you know that's their prerogative as filmmakers. But yeah, it probably influenced a film similar films to that as well. True life, very accurate films. Again, none of which spring
1: to mind, but <laughs> I, I'm sure that was influential. So we uh, it, agree. it also um, made Tom Hanks even more of a star, if that's possible. It was
0: certainly, yeah, he's it, not quite reached the level of uh, lionisation that he has at the minute. Um, but he is one of the few stars not to be mired in, um, scandal, <laughs> which is Who nice. knows? Maybe he's even a good guy. <laughs> maybe he's genuinely a good guy. He certainly seems to be, by all accounts, which is a nice thing. Um, he popped up on Dan Carlin's hardcore history the other day, which is surprising. He's a real passion for history, um, uh, which shines out, because I think they did do a whole TV series on the back of Apollo 13, uh, From the Earth to the Moon, I think, hmm. which Tom Hanks had was, producer or something like that. Uh, the and Easter. narrated I think. And narrated, yeah yeah, you're right. It, it wasn't for me again, because it has a sort of I don't know, a, there's something uh, an American documentary to, to British ears, I don't know I, I never quite works for me. I mean there are some that work very well, but uh, not a Tom Hanks narrated one. <laughs> um, but there we are, we both agree. Masterpiece, um, not mm. quite for us, but that's maybe Uh, that's our own reasons, I I suspect. (laughs) Um, But we want something maybe with a bit more heart for it to really... It didn't move me emotionally. um,
1: There there were moments that did, but overall I was not grabbed anything like as much as I think I was supposed to be.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. It probably did move me the first time I watched it, though. But knowing much more about it, it, it's hard not to nitpick it. Mm. Well, there we are. Apollo 13. Thank you, Ron Howard. Very... Good job. Well, Sorry also. We didn't like it as much as everyone else, yeah, but we did like
1: it. This is our first 1995 film. We have struggled with the
0: 90s to pick films, I must mm. say. Maybe we'll do better in 96, but we've, we've been <laughs> uninspired by the choices on offer, I must say. Uh,
1: but so looking at the, so the, the, this picked up uh, nine Academy Award nominations, and it, it ended up getting two relatively minor wins. Okay. Um... It it did get a lot in the Producers, Directors, Screen Actors and Writers Guild Awards. Yeah. Which I think it i am not sure this was the first time they did those awards, but it was a relatively early one. Um and it and it picked up quite a bit there. But uh at the Oscars Braveheart uh got a lot. Uh leaving yeah. Las Vegas, Dead Man Walking, Usual Suspects.
0: I think it would have been perhaps a bit unfair for this to get best actor. I don't know. Maybe that's unfair. <laughs> uh, they, were, they were very accurate. They just, they, they, uh, yeah. Not the kind of, um, performances that are particularly memorable, but they're very good.
1: Hmm. And looking at the box office, uh, so, number 10, Jumanji, the original. Which, oh,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I Well, as we've talked about before, neither of Us is a huge Robin. Williams fans and yeah. a problem I've I've never actually seen it.
1: Um and The th- new Jumanji,
0: uh is, I, I think you'd like it. You liked um was it Jungle Cruise? I think mm-hmm. you'd like Jumanji. Um it certainly has the rock in it again. He, he
1: makes everything better. Uh at number nine, thinking of films that are, that are not as bad to their reputation, Waterworld. I mean, I've
0: never actually seen it, but n- I nor yeah, have
1: I. But the the cliche was, you know, this was a complete bomb. Nobody saw it, and so on. It 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 lost some money, and then it made some yeah. more money back. And you know, <laughs> I I think there was a, a certain amount of this is Costner's big vanity project. Let's take him down a peg. Uh yes. j- just as we talked about with Last Action Hero.
0: Was this after Dancers with Wolves? I think it was. Yeah. and everyone loved Dancers with Wolves, and so yeah, it was time now to say. um yeah, it's not good enough. And exactly, as, as with Last Action Hero, um, it's probably nowhere near as bad as it's. It, but it just became the go-to bomb for that year.
1: Mm. Uh, number eight, a um, possibly the most 90s film we've talked about yet, uh, Casper, which is the, <laughs> the, the dark fantasy reimagining of the 40s and 50s animated shorts, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Yeah, because everything's got to be adult and dark and gritty.
0: Is that true? Is that? I always thought it was a kids' film, or has there been a later one that's a kids' film? I, d- I don't know. I, I haven't seen any of the Casper films, and the kids haven't been too excited.
1: But I suppose it's, I, you, I don't think the shorts were ever shown over here. Or if they were, it wasn't any time I saw them.
0: But it's you know, if you're going to have a kid ghost, at some point you've got a dead kid
1: there. <laughs> so you know, mm. it's, there's got to be some darkness to it. Um, but I. I well, admit I had never even heard of it. So, all right, okay. Number, uh, uh, no, uh, I mean, I, I've only heard of Casper the Friendly Ghost because of Ghostbusters. <laughs>
0: A much better film, I suspect. Uh,
1: number seven, uh, seven, the uh, David Fincher.
0: Uh, well, we did wonder about. I must say, I, don't, I mean, that you can't deny seven was extremely influential because every fucking oh, serial killer after that had to have some plot or talk about Dante's Inferno <laughs> or oh this this one's doing it after John Milton I, I just I don't know that is to me we maybe talked about this before that's not that's not how serial killers work they're not mastermind geniuses with a with a plot to educate humanity they're kind of fairly sorted they're often very clever but they well not always actually just yeah kind of but re, re, read sad. sexual or,
1: homicide patterns and motives people
0: I, well exactly yeah which <laughs> Uh, it's a very good film I guess that was It is terrifyingly it is Um, uh, this was David Finch's after um, Alien uh, Alien 3 um, where he sort of finally Mm -hmm. managed to do his own thing he's a very good filmmaker and I've 7 lured me in and I loved it the first time I've just really called on it probably because it was so influential I, I don't know. I want to watch a film about a serial killer like that again ever in my
1: life. Mm. Uh, so number six, uh, Batman Forever. Uh, so this is the last. Holy smokes! Uh, let's see. This is where uh, Val Kilmer replaces Michael Keaton, but it's it's in that 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 Warner Brothers film series. It's that,
0: it's that series that started so well with um, Tim Burton, uh, and by this time we're with Joel Schumacher, mm-hmm. I think. Which is? Was it was another of is, those.
1: I want a film made. I want it to be a budget. Go to it, guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we should talk about Joel Schumacher, but I doubt he's going to trouble um, this podcast too much. <laughs> yeah, uh, but certainly it's terrible. Is this the one where um, with Mister Freeze is uh, Arnie? No, it's it. not the one with Arnie. It's not the one I with Arnie. The it's the one, one, one after that, is it? Um, oh my God! So it struggled on another one.
1: Uh, this is the one with Jim Carrey's the Riddler. Oh, maybe Poison Ivy is no
0: maybe that's no. no that's the one with oh wow well, okay
1: I well, mean okay as far as I'm concerned and if you're listening John you probably knew this about me already the canonical screen Batman to me is Adam West yeah so yeah.
0: You know. <laughs> There's. I think John um, uh, sorry a friend of the podcast sent me um, uh, a link of Adam West reading several panels of The Dark Knight Returns and it was just joyous <laughs> <laughs> but there we go uh So, at number five uh Pocahontas Uh Yeah, the Disney film that even my kids can't be bothered to watch and uh, <laughs> if we're talking about historical accuracy I would probably rather claw my eyes out than try and watch it because <laughs> the actual truth of it is so depressing that to make mm. a Disney film out of it seems about as good taste as making a feel-good musical um, about P.T. Barnum But there we go Yeah
1: <laughs> not that anybody would do that, of course.
0: No, no, certainly not. Uh,
1: number four, GoldenEye. Um, this is Ooh, genuinely ja- good, James Bond. James Bond has taken a six year break because, you know, 1989 and 1990 have happened.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's... yet again they've had to reinvent the series.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's really good, actually. Goldeneye. Um, it's a Shame. Just uh, I, much as I like Pierce Brosnan, I, Timothy Dalton was a very good Bond. Um, mm-hmm. I, I haven't got much skin in the game because I don't genuinely like Bond particularly. And my favourite Bond is Roger Moore, which probably tells you it is <laughs> as much about me. Yeah, it's probably just when I grew up. Yeah, but, well he was the first
1: one I saw. So,
0: but it's a it's a genuinely good film, I think. Golden Knight unlike any other film, uh, Bond film
1: Pierce Brosnan did. Hey. <laughs> Uh number three is this. Uh actually look looking at the worldwide grosses, it's it's a lot tighter than we've seen, some of them. Uh top end is three hundred and sixty odd million, bottom end is two hundred and sixty odd million. We we've seen a lot more okay. spread than that in previous years. Yeah, yeah. Uh number two I'm, sorry,
0: I'm more interested in all of these films than we have been for the last few
1: countdowns, <laughs> but... uh num- number two, one that we definitely will come back and revisit, but not just yet. Uh another Tom Hanks film, Toy Story.
0: Oh, yes, we will. But um, because we're considering all masterpieces in a series, we're not going to finish with Toy Story 1. We're just not sure whether we'll finish at 3 or 4, but we'll discuss that later.
1: Yeah. Uh, At number one, one we have already considered and rejected, uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, Yeah. It did make an awful lot of money. Uh, This is the one with Jeremy Irons, I think.
0: Yeah. I... I uh, I don't know. I went through a phase of really not liking Jeremy Irons and then I watched The Watchmen where he does a very good Adrian Veidt in it. Um mm. uh oh sorry spoilers if you're watching the Watchmen TV series uh he's Adrian Veidt you probably shouldn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh he's no the problem with anyone anyone trying to be Alan Rickman is that they're not Alan Rickman. Yeah, and this is the one where he really is. The reason Die Hard Two works is that the villain is is not trying to be Alan Rickman. Um, one of the reasons Die Hard Two works um, here, and it's got
1: a plot twist which isn't the same as the first film's plot twist.
0: I, exactly. Whereas this is a very different film, but this is, I think, it's Hans Gruber's brother. Um,
1: yeah. 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 Um.
0: Yeah, well, there we are. I, I just it. picture,
1: you know, Hans Gruber's brother write, writes to John McClane and says, thanks, now, now I don't have to fight over the turkey at Christmas anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think the actual plot becomes, it's, it's, they hated each other. Anyway, as I said, it's, it's no masterpiece, that's why we
1: finished it, Die Hard 1. And- mm. So, I mean, yeah, there, there are some non-terrible films in there, but, yeah...
0: I prefer that countdown to a lot of them we've had recently. I've been struggling with the mid-90s. I don't know why, but I'm approaching a period of my life um, in the 90s when I saw an awful lot of films at the cinema, which will mm-hmm. probably be 97, 98. So it'd be interesting to see how I feel about them then. There we are. Hmm. All right. Well, I think um, that I can't think of how to sign off on Apollo 30. I should do. It's terrible.
1: So long, um, Earth. Catch you on the flip side. There you go. I need
0: yeah. Get um by Roger. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>